Hello, and welcome to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll be continuing our discussion of the reign of the second Caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. The wars started by his predecessor, and his own success managing them, had fundamentally altered the world in which the Arabs lived, and the Caliph responded by crafting bold policies aimed at protecting the Ummah from the new dangers it now faced. Episode 7. Changing to Stay the Same When I said that the lived reality of the Arabs had changed fundamentally, I was mainly referring to these three new facts. 1. Instead of fighting amongst themselves, tribes now competed for glory within a united cause, focusing their martial energy towards other peoples. Arabs had neither killed nor enslaved one another since the end of Abu Bakr's wars of apostasy, a state of affairs that had never existed before. 2. They were no longer confined to the desert and now ruled lands far beyond their usual haunts on the Arabian Peninsula, lands containing settled populations with different traditions, religions, and languages. 3. They were now fabulously rich. Their custom of splitting all war booty had made the last few years profitable on a scale never before imagined by a people so accustomed to the forbidding poverty of the desert. Now, these may all seem like unquestionably positive developments, and while it is true that their pros outweighed their cons, they presented the Ummah with unfamiliar challenges that risked leading to great discord if not properly addressed. The Caliphate's expansion, for example, meant that there were now multiple distant provinces with powerful governors and commanders, something which undermined the unity the Arabs had so recently forged. Worse yet, many of those in positions of power were from Quraysh, and while this tribe's semi-monopoly on power was tolerated, it did not go unnoticed. Also, the settled populations they'd conquered had influential cultures and enjoyed luxuries previously unknown to most of the nomadic Arabs, making them another potential source of distraction, or corruption, depending on how you look at it. So it's fair to say that these exciting new times presented plenty of ways for things to go awry. Of the many dangers facing his community, what seemed to worry the caliph the most were his ever-expanding borders and all the wealth they brought the Ummah. There are many stories in the Arab sources of Omar lamenting the constant warfare, even one of him crying when he saw the first caravans that brought a fifth of the Sassanid capital Tesafon's treasures to Medina. Asked why he was weeping, he replied, God has never cursed a nation with so much wealth without destroying it. Prophetic words, and as such likely attributed to him later, but they make more sense when you combine them with Omar's reputation for living frugally. Sources say he owned one shirt and went around barefoot, plainly embodying the example he hoped his people, especially their leaders, would follow. He had given up his trading business as soon as he became caliph and refused to appoint any of his clan to positions of influence. I'm worried that I've introduced too many themes so far. Newfound wealth, powerful men in distant provinces, Arabs living in cities with influential cultures, the seemingly unstoppable momentum their conquests had taken on, and a strong, wary caliph with a moral axe to grind. 
It's just that the policies enacted by Omar after the major victories at Yarmouk, Qadisiyah, and Jalaula had a deep impact on all these things. In order for you to properly appreciate their magnitude, though, I first need to quickly remind you how things were done until then. Since Abu Bakr had a penchant for doing things exactly like the Prophet had, the conquering armies still pooled all the war spoils, sent a fifth of them back to Medina, and split the rest equally amongst themselves. Or almost equally. Since they were responsible for their own equipment, those who had brought horses to the fight received twice as much as those who hadn't, to compensate them for risking their steeds. Under both the Prophet and Abu Bakr, there was no question of how to deal with conquered lands. With the exception of a few small towns on the Arabian Peninsula, the concept simply did not apply to campaigns against other nomadic tribes. So when all was said and done, victorious Arab warriors would split the wealth of the men they'd killed, which typically included weapons, animals, money, and valuable items. They also took with them any widows and orphans they thought would make worthy slaves. Finally, treaties with subdued peoples usually included a stipulation to pay a poll tax, and the sources report the low figure of one dirham or dinar per man per year being used by all of the Prophet, Khalid ibn al-Walid, and Amr ibn al-As. There were separate duties for grains and other goods, but the needs of a nomadic people in the desert were bound to be less than those of a sprawling empire, and so Arab taxes usually compared favorably to imperial rates. As with the war booty, a fifth of these was also sent back to Medina, the rest being shared by the men. The Prophet had no caliphate, and so he had no treasury. He mainly used his fifth of the community's plunder to feed those in the ummah who could not provide for themselves, the old, the sick, the weak, and the orphaned or widowed. Abu Bakr's treasury was exactly the Prophet's share of the community's revenue. The zakat that he'd fought the other nomadic tribes to reinstate, the fifth of any booty captured in war or money from treating with others, and food from lands that had been owned by the Prophet constituted all its possible revenue streams. He emptied it regularly by distributing money and food equally to everyone who needed help getting by, again, exactly as the Prophet had done. It seems to me that he considered the collection and equitable distribution of the Prophet's share of revenue to be part of his religious duties as caliph. Omar started out doing exactly the same, but he soon faced a situation which neither the Prophet nor Abu Bakr had set any precedent for. Too much booty. Most sources point to the exorbitant amount of treasure captured from the Sassanid capital as the reason why Omar shook up the system in the first place. One apocryphal narrative goes that he summoned two prominent members of Quraysh to advise him on what to do his Umayyad secretary Uthman, and the Hashemite cousin of the Prophet, Ali ibn Abi Talib. The pious Ali advised the Caliph not to depart from the Prophet's practices for the sake of money, as he would risk compromising his own afterlife. The worldly Uthman, however, gave much more practical advice. He told the Caliph to hold on to it, saying that its distribution to everyone would surely lead to confusion and disarray. In case you're curious, the Shahanshah's treasure is reported as 3,000,000,000 of what we have to assume are drachma or dirhams, since the sources don't say. That's around 9,000 tons of silver. Whether that's all the coin there was or just the fifth that reached Medina also goes unsaid. But there is a fascinating story about the standard of the House of Sasan, which was a square flag, carpet, or tapestry, 60 arms long on each side intricately woven and stuffed with jewels and precious metals depicting many fantastic scenes of royal splendor. 
The story goes that when Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas spotted it in the royal palace at Tesafon, he told his men that he thought they should send it back to the caliph, and they all agreed that that sounded like a good idea. When the people of Medina unrolled the carpet and saw it in its full glory, however, they began fighting over what should be done with it. Omar was greatly upset by all this chaos, and he ordered it be cut into equally sized pieces and distributed to everyone there, siding with Adid's suggestion on that one. The incident may have really jarred him though, because instead of doing the same with the money, he seemed to go with Uthman's advice and held on to it by giving out only what was necessary to those in need. The rest of it began piling up in that house where they kept the money. Money house, Baytul Mal, is the literal translation of the Arabic word for treasury. Of course, a pious, austere caliph like Omar, one who thought of himself as an example to be imitated by the men of his ummah, wasn't going to just hoard all the wealth in his treasury. He just needed some time to figure out what to do with it. We actually don't know very much about the timing of the caliph's policy changes. Sadly, the classical sources are pretty unconcerned about those details. It makes sense that the wealth of the Sassanid Empire presented a real issue, and its capital was conquered in 637. We also know that after the Arab victory at Jalaula had secured all of al-Iraq for them, the caliph ordered the founding of cities at the edges of the desert. These were intended to be military cantons, and to house all the Arab warriors that had subdued the settled populations. The Arab sources give only the simple reason that Omar did not like the look of the men who returned from the wars in Iraq. He asked them why they seemed so sick, and when they blamed the foulness of the air around the river, he ordered Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas to scout out an area that left, and I quote, neither river nor bridge between the caliph and his people. Another source reports that Omar asked the returning men whether they'd reached lands that were unfit for their camels. When they said that the camels suffered greatly from the mosquitoes around and beyond the rivers, he ordered all Arabs back to the desert, saying that Arabs should only live where their camels could live. Modern historians have been much, much more inquisitive about the reasons behind Omar's decision to move the Arabs to their own cities, as it proved to be one of his most enlightened policies. Was it because he was wary of the dangers these populations posed, both mortal and moral? Was he trying to control many areas from a few strategic locations? Was it to keep taxes stable by making sure the Arabs did not disrupt the everyday lives of their new subjects? Was it to try and engender some Arab unity by making sure the different tribes all lived in the same cities? Or was it to rein in increasingly distant, influential, and ambitious governors? The caliph knocked out so many proverbial birds with that stone, it's difficult to tell which he was aiming for. And so, the cities of Kufa and Basra were founded a year or two before the famine of 640. At first they were intended to be more like tent cities, but after a fire burnt down all the reed huts in Kufa, Omar begrudgingly agreed to build them out of mud and stone. They quickly grew to have many districts that housed the warriors, their retinues, and sometimes their families along tribal lines. Some sources claim that the policy was ordered throughout the caliphate, but any military cantons in Syria must have been very close to the settled population, because the plague we discussed last time really ravaged them, and only them. Each city was responsible for making sure the areas around it paid their taxes on time and that there was no active resistance to threaten stability and productivity. These tasks kept the Arab warriors busy for now, but since war was the only way those men made their wealth, the caliph would have to find them a new source of income if he truly wanted to end the problematic expansion of his realm. So probably in 641, 
the year of Heraclius' death, by the way, though in some tellings even earlier, Omar decided to use all the money he had in his treasury to reshape the caliphate. First, he ordered the ranking of all the Arabs according to precedence in Islam. There's a story that when the ones who were writing this ranking began with the Prophet's family, then Abu Bakr's, then Omar's, the caliph objected and said they should do it according to real precedence in Islam, chronologically. Ultimately, he came up with a pension system which paid out the most to the early Muslims than those who had fought at Badr, followed by the ones who fought at Mount Uhud, then the Battle of the Trench, and so on. Next, he extended the system to all the Arab warriors. Since they were all stationed in various cities, he ordered each city to keep its own army register, or diwan. Warriors would be paid according to the numbers of campaigns they participated in. The governors or commanders of the military cities were responsible for collecting taxes from the region around them, paying their men out of those revenues, then forwarding the rest back to Medina. In order to understand why Omar may have wanted to halt the caliphate's expansion, it's important to note the difference between the conquests envisioned by Abu Bakr and those achieved by Omar. Abu Bakr had ordered the early raids on other Arab tribes, and he acted with the seemingly unshakable belief that Islam would never meet defeat. We've already described how those early efforts spiraled into wars with the empires, and I'm sure you'd agree that raiding other Arab tribes and offering them membership in Islam is very different from telling Heraclius or Yazdegerd that they could be spared war or taxation if they converted along with their people. What would it even mean for a ruler to convert their population? Unlike the settled peoples, the Arab tribes outside the peninsula had a lot more in common with the Muslims, and many of them joined the religion and then its armies, or vice versa. While the Muslims were clearly anxious for other Arabs to convert to their religion, they displayed none of that fervor when it came to settled populations. Those living in towns and cities were expected to accept Muslim sovereignty by disarming and agreeing to pay tribute, after which they were free to govern themselves as long as they never conspired against their new masters. When they defeated the imperial armies, the Arabs inherited a functioning state bureaucracy on a local level, which they left untouched. This not only ensured that the day-to-day lives of their settled citizens were remarkably unchanged, but also that the revenues from their taxation remained similarly stable. The Arab approach was so hands-off that they did not mint any new coins, hire new bureaucrats, or even try to translate the tax records to their own language. Byzantine taxes were gold coins called dinars, and their records were kept in Greek, while Sassanid taxes were silver coins called dirhams, and their records were kept in Persian. Under this new system, the caliphate was supposed to stop warring with its neighbors and focus on managing its new lands. But alas, there was to be one more major battle during the second caliph's reign. Unlike the Byzantines, the Sassanids kept provoking unrest in their old provinces by attacking Arab positions there, and by 642, Yazdegard III had put together another massive army near Nahavant, a city in a western province of Iran. In what they came to glorify as the Battle of Battles, 30,000 or so Arabs bested 100,000 defenders in a bloody affair, which led to heavy losses on both sides. Some sources report that the Arabs pretended to have received news of their caliph's death and mournfully packed up to leave, leading the defenders to abandon their fortified positions in pursuit. That's when they flanked them, and both sides lost two-thirds of their men. Both the Arab and Sassanid commanders died in the battle, as did Islam's old frenemy, Tulaiha. 
the Sasanians were never again able to field armies that large, despite the Shahanshah's efforts in Isfahan following this loss. The small army he managed to raise there mutinied against him, and after treating with the Arabs, forced him to flee to Astakhr, the empire's original capital in the province of Pars. With these victories, Omar's realm stretched from Alexandria in the west to Iran in the east, Armenia to the north and Sudan to the south. This made the Arabs a tiny minority in their own caliphate. Estimates vary, but they added up to less than 10%, probably closer to 5%, of the overall population. This imbalance must have loomed large in the caliph's mind, because he expanded the separation between the Arabs and the settled populations, which he'd begun with his founding of military cities for the troops. He forbade non-Arabs from entering the peninsula and expelled the non-Muslim populations already residing there. While this was a breach of an agreement those communities had made with the Prophet himself, Omar received surprisingly little censure from the Ummah for this decision. I find this last set of policies to be the most revealing about Omar's understanding of his own caliphate. It seems to me like he thought of the Arabs as one large tribe, of himself as its chief, and of the settled populations as its herd. His task was like that of any other tribal chiefs, to treat the members of his tribe justly, to protect his kinsmen and their herd, and to manage this herd efficiently. While there were still ongoing hostilities in all of Africa, Syria, and Iran, Omar's policies had succeeded in slowing down the caliphate's growth, and this stability enabled the caliph to turn his attention to other issues he wanted addressed. Do you remember that Omar asked Abu Bakr to discharge his cousin Khalid ibn al-Walid immediately after scandalous rumors about his conduct reached Medina? Omar's first act as caliph was to remove Khalid's troops from his command, and later, when the Byzantine front had cooled considerably, he ordered his full retirement. Sunni sources stress that the reason for this was not personal enmity, but then again the Sunni sources usually do tend to stress, and at times exaggerate, the unity of the early Muslims. There are possibilities other than enmity, of course, one being Omar's hypersensitivity to nepotism. Khalid was a direct cousin in a very prominent position, something the caliph seemed to have been incapable of tolerating. Another possibility segues nicely into our next policy discussion, that it wasn't just Khalid. Omar may have been worried about the outsized influence the Quraysh had on the caliphate, for many of his changes undermined their prominence. He kept his leadership in check, much of it from Quraysh, by encouraging the rank-and-file Arabs to report even the smallest infraction, promising them justice and nothing less. One of his most trusted companions, Muhammad ibn Maslama of the Khasraj tribe of the Ansar, acted as a sort of chief investigator for Omar. Whenever there were complaints that a certain governor had behaved in some unfitting manner, Muhammad ibn Maslama would be sent to find out the truth of the matter and usually hand over a strongly worded letter of summons or demand for resignation from Omar. For example, when news reached the caliph that Amr ibn al-As had grown rich in Egypt, he sent Muhammad ibn Maslama with a harsh rebuke to his governor, ordering him to hand over half of his wealth to the treasury. It is a dark age in which we can be treated this way, complained Amr. Hush, Maslama replied, if it wasn't for this age you curse, you'd be squatting under your goat with a bucket. Its fullness would please you, and its emptiness would cause you dismay. This story nicely showcases two themes that repeatedly crop up in narratives about Omar. How the caliph constantly sought to remind his people who they were, lest their lofty new positions make them forget their humble beginnings, 
and how indifferent he was to Qurayshi descent when dispensing his moral justice. Though technically untrue, Omar gained a reputation for not leaving a governor in place for more than two years. He was vigilant against the corrupting influences of money and power, and understood that as the only one in the position to rein in his leaders, that responsibility fell squarely on his shoulders. Governors in Kufa and Basra were changed especially often, as complaints from the people there came frequently. Upcoming developments will explain why Omar's record on appointments in ex-Byzantine lands is contested in too many ways for us to be able to confidently talk about how he managed those provinces. But no matter what narrative we rely on, Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan emerges as the main subject of interest. Some claim that Omar eagerly gave him Palestine and Jordan, uniting all of greater Syria under the Umayyad governor after he'd proven how competent he was. Other sources say that Omar kept Muawiyah in check like any other Qurayshi, even taking homs from him to lessen his power, but that he was never removed from his position as governor of Damascus because the caliph never received any complaints from the troops under Muawiyah's charge. Finally, there's a story explaining how Muawiyah had made himself so indispensable to the Muslim cause in Syria. It states that the Hemirites, remember them, episode 1, were trying to revive their state north of the desert, with Damascus as a capital. They had a descendant of their old king and everything, and he'd bought a lot of property around the city and moved several Yemeni tribes to the area. The only major obstacle to their vision of a new Hemyar was the clout of Muawiyah, who had married the daughter of the chief of the Kalb, a powerful Christian ex tribe of Yemeni origin too. This splintered the support the Hemyarites could hope to rally and ensured that Omar's caliphate stayed intact. It's not worth delving too deep into the motivations of those who push each narrative, just know that Muawiyah was a rare example of a prominent Qurayshi who had zero precedence in Islam, staying in power during Omar's reign. Before we wrap up, I want to mention two important ways in which Omar differed from his predecessor. Abu Bakr had argued that the tribe Quraysh had a unique right to govern the Ummah and that the Ansar should be content to be their wuzara, aides, ministers, or right-hand men. It's clear from the pension system he devised that Omar thought of precedence in Islam as a more important criterion. His new army register system undermined the Quraysh while enhancing the status of the early Muslims. Since most of the Quraysh had only converted after the Prophet pardoned them when he took Mecca, they did not benefit from this new system in any way, while the early Muslims were publicly favored and honored. When he was asked why he was departing from the ways of the Prophet and Abu Bakr, who, as I mentioned, used to distribute everything equally, Omar replied that he couldn't in good conscience equate between those who had fought with the Prophet and those who had fought against him, appointed Jab at the Quraysh. In fact, Omar sometimes shamed those Meccans by calling them Taliq, or pardoned, in reference to the amnesty they had to receive from the Prophet. Again, unlike Abu Bakr, Omar tried to reach out to the Prophet's clan, and the Banu Hashim were somewhat restored in standing in his new pension system, since many of them had joined Islam early on. Omar made sure Ali and his two sons from the Prophet's daughter Fatima were well compensated, and he even granted them some of the lands that they had asked for as part of their inheritance from the Prophet, though not the bountiful Fadak estates, which the Hashemites still insisted had been publicly promised to Fatima. Omar also married Ali's daughter Umm Kulthum, though the sources are silent on who instigated this match and why. Despite all this, the caliph's relationship with Ali bin Abi Talib was only a little bit better than Abu Bakr's had been, 
and Omar never appointed any Hashemites to positions of command. Aware of the importance of keeping the Banu Hashim close, however, he raised Ali's cousin, Abdullah, son of Abbas, to the position of advisor. Abdullah ibn al-Abbas had a front-row seat to much of Omar's caliphate and is actually one of the major transmitters for stories about his generation, quoted heavily in both Sunni and Shiai sources. There are many Abdullahs, and I'll stick to the Arab custom of mentioning them with their father's names in an effort to limit any possible confusion. Abdullah ibn al-Abbas will pop up in our story every now and then, but his descendants will demand much, much more attention. The changes the Ummah underwent during the reign of its second caliph were profound. Omar's policies transformed it from a tribal confederacy to a sort of nomadic military caste, ruling remotely over settled populations that spoke different languages and practiced different faiths. He remained in Medina, never lured away by the wealth of the cities he conquered, and instructed his governors to do the same and reside in garrison towns themselves. This may sound like a truism, but he understood that in order to remain who they were, the Arabs had to themselves stay true to it. They had to refuse the luxuries their victories had made available to them and live only with one another so they wouldn't be corrupted by the influential cultures of the peoples they now ruled. His authority kept all his governors in check and his readiness to listen to any complaint made all the people feel they had the caliph's attention whenever injustice reared its head. Join me next time to learn more about his untimely death and how his successor was chosen. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>